Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. I'll invite you to turn there, 1 Corinthians 1. And I'm going to read this whole passage uh, from verse 10 down to verse 16. Uh, We started last week the imperative of church unity. And we looked at that section there where Paul deals with unity in the local assembly. And last week we focused on verses 10 through 12. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16, but for the context, I'm going to read that whole section there where Paul is talking about unity within the body. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 10, these are the words of God. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanas. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Again, last week we looked at verses 10 through 12, and as the Apostle Paul transitions into the section of this epistle in which he addresses specific issues, the very first problem he tackles is the sin of disunity. After he's finished his introductory remarks, and after he's prayed that prayer that Paul typically prays at the beginning of his epistles, he immediately starts getting into the root of the matter of the issues that Corinth was facing, and the very first thing he has to address is division and disunity in the local church. Right. And we considered the severity and the specifics of this sin as it was manifested in that church. The church had divided itself into different parties that all centered around specific religious leaders. There were some that said, I'm of Paul. Then there was the Apollos crowd. And then there was the Cephas group. And then there was the really spiritual ones (laughs) that said, oh, I'm of Christ. And we noted that really that wasn't the most spiritual one. It was actually the worst one because they had used the name of the Lord Jesus as a source of contention and division. And the Corinthians had become more focused on men than they were upon the Lord. They exalted the messengers of the cross above the cross itself. They were more desirous to be identified with a preacher than they were to be identified with Christ. 
And they were more caught up in sermon delivery and the style of the preacher than they were the substance of what was preached unto them. And because of the immaturity of their faith, they could not rise above the persona of these religious leaders. And instead of serving as men who pointed them to Christ, they became stumbling blocks. These religious leaders hindered the Corinthians from the full blessings of the gospel. Imagine the conversation at their fellowship meals. They would have spent all their time talking about the style of the preacher. They would have said one to another, Oh, that Apollos, man, he had some good alliteration in his outline this morning, didn't he? But the conversation would have never risen above the charisma and transitioned to the content of the gospel message. Right. It reminds me of a story I heard about two fellers that went to hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon there in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. No doubt Spurgeon was probably one of the greatest orators that's ever lived since the days of the New Testament. And... Uh, One feller, after listening to Spurgeon preach a sermon, said to him, Wow, what a great preacher of Christ is that Spurgeon. Another feller looked to him and said, Ah, yes, but more importantly, what a great Christ he preaches. Amen. And you know, really, that's what a preacher should desire to have said about him. I don't want you to go away from here thinking, What a great job. What a great message. I always get tickled when I'm preaching places and somebody comes up after the message and they pat me on the back and they say, good job. A sermon is not meant to be a performance. A sermon is not meant to be a show that you put on for the crowd. I heard one preacher... He was talking one time and he was saying, yeah, I had, I had all these good lines and I was given these zingers and the crowd went wild. It was like he was talking about some kind of rock and roll concert. <laughs> well, the church house is not supposed to be that way. Amen. We are all one congregation. You are not a crowd. You are not an audience. And I am certainly not a performer. Amen. And so the Corinthians were in a serious mess. And Paul realizes that he needs to desperately shake them to their senses and show them the error of their ways so that they might turn from their disunity before they self-destruct. Amen. And he does this by asking three rhetorical questions in our text tonight in verse 13. And these questions point to three distinct Places of unity that the church had neglected to uphold. Now Paul could have simply stated these points. Here's point one, here's point two, here's point three. But he uses these interrogative questions, these rhetorical questions, so that the Corinthians can see the absurdity and sinfulness of their behavior. You know, those of you who have children... When your kid is out playing in the road, what what do you say to them? You scream out and you say, Hey, are you trying to get yourself killed? Well, obviously, that's not what the child is doing. But you ask a question like that so that they can see the the seriousness of their behavior. Amen. 
And so Paul is asking these rhetorical questions in verse 13, and all of these questions have an obviously implied negative answer, but the Corinthians were conducting themselves as if the answer to all three of these questions was a yes. And this, this illustrates for us a very somber truth, and that is this. The way in which we live and the way in which we conduct ourselves as a church reveals what we think about the character of God. Right, amen. If, if we operate with disunity and we are supposed to be the body of Christ, well, what are we saying about the head? Yes. Amen, that's it. So Paul asks them these very powerful questions and he, he points to the, the heart of the church's issue and provides them at the same time with the, the supreme reasons for church unity. I told you last week we were going to look at the, the problem that they were facing and we did and now tonight we want to look at the solution to that problem. Okay, So there's three points of unity each one of them in one of these three rhetorical questions. So look at verse 13. The first point of unity I want you to see is the unity in Christ. Amen. The unity in Christ. Paul asked the question, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? He begins by confronting their disunity through appealing to the very nature of Jesus Christ. Understand that Jesus was the most purposed and unified individual that ever lived. Amen. He came to this earth with one objective. He said, I do always those things which please the Father. Amen. He said, my meat is to do the will of Him that sent me. Amen. And everything He ever did contributed to the ultimate accomplishment of the work given to Him by the Father. He didn't waste a single second of his life. Right. Uh, he didn't do anything that would have been counterintuitive to the ultimate purpose that he was to fulfill. Oftentimes, we, we as Christians, we know what our work is in this world. Right. And it's a very convicting thought. Every second of every day, everything you do, everything you watch, everything you listen to, everything you say, everywhere you go, how you spend your money, how you use your time... Is everything you do contributing to the work that God has given you? Right. I don't believe any of us could honestly answer yes to You're that right. question. Amen. But Jesus could answer yes to that question. Yes. Everything He ever did was all part of His one plan to fulfill the work that God had given Him. And in so doing, in living this way, Jesus left us with a perfect example of unity. Within Him, that is within His person, there was no disunity. There was singleness in the Lord Jesus. Amen. And if we are to do all that our Lord has tasked us with, then we must operate with the same level of cohesion and agreement. The solution to division in the body is simple yet profound. And it is Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. The more we draw near to Christ, the more we will draw near to one another. Amen. The closer we are to Christ, the closer we are to each other. And the greater we strive 
to possess the unity amongst ourselves that Christ had within His own person, the more glory and honor we will bring to Him. Amen. We need as a church to look unto Him and to see the unity that He possessed, the harmony that He had within Himself, and we need to emulate that as a body. Furthermore, Jesus Christ is the one and only head of the church. Amen. And all the members of the church are one in Him. Amen. And when we have division in the body, we are in essence attempting to divide the head. And so by asking this rhetorical question, Paul highlights how illogical schisms are in the church. It makes no sense. Paul says, is Christ divided? Well, then why are you? If, if your head is not divided, why is the body? And the Corinthians acted as if Christ was broken up into little segments. And part of the church has part of Christ, and another part of the church has another part of Christ. You know, we, we see that in our churches, mm -hmm. even You're today. Right. Well, there's this one group, they like to have the holiness of Christ, and this group likes to have the love of Christ. And I, I, I even hear people articulate that. And they say, well, we know God is just, and we know He's holy, and we know He's got wrath, but we like to really focus on the love of God. And then, you know, there's another group that says, we like to really focus on the justice of God, right? Well, the thing about that is, is Christ is not divided. Amen. This is not a Christological buffet where you go through and take what you want. You have all of Christ for all of life because He's not divided. Amen. And what's so detrimental about this behavior is that not only were they presenting this testimony among themselves, but this is the message that they were conveying to the world around them. Mm -hmm. Understand that they're in a, in a context where monotheism, that is, has one God and one God only, it's a radical idea in a polytheistic society. And by acting as if they're all serving these different gods and they all have these different religious leaders that they look up to, they were really modeling the polytheists around them. Mm -hmm. Amen. The church should be characterized by the right kind of oneness. <laughs> Not the anti-Trinitarian heretical oneness, but we should have a oneness in spirit about us. That is, we serve one God and we are all to be like Him. Amen. And when we exist with division and disunity in our church, we are professing to the onlooking world that our Lord is also divided like we are. Right. And we ought never to present such a false and shameful testimony. Amen. Divisions in the church bear false witness to the very nature of Christ. That's how serious this issue is. It is contrary to Christ's nature for His church, that is His body, to be divided into various hostile groups. So we must fervently seek the harmony and the solidarity of Jesus Christ. And as a church, we need to be characterized by His divine unity. Mm -hmm. So the Amen. first point of unity that Paul brings up to these Corinthians is the unity in Christ. Secondly, in his second question, he brings up, he mentions the unity in the cross. Mm -hmm. He says, was Paul crucified for you? <laughs> now his 
first argument stem from the nature and the structure of Christ and His church. But this question approaches an argument for unity from the vantage point of the common redemption that all the Corinthians shared with one another. And this powerful question is a stern rebuke to the schismatics in the church. See, they were paying so much homage to mere human instructors that it was as if they thought that some religious leader had died for them on the cross. And so with this question, the, the Corinthians are simultaneously reproved of their factualism, factionalism and they're also called to remember the single greatest unifying power in all the world. Amen. Nothing unites like Calvary. Amen. The cross overcomes all factions, all cliques, all divisions. At the cross, there can be only unity because all of our distinctions... All of our diversity is dwarfed in the shadow of that old rugged tree. Amen. The cross transcends all boundaries, be they cultural or linguistic or geographical or ethnic. It's an old adage, but it's true. And that is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen. Revelation 5.9, the Bible Speaking of the Lord Jesus says, For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The cross does not do away with our distinctions. If you are a white man and you are converted, guess what? You're still a white man. If you are a woman and you're converted, you're still a woman. Yep. But, but the cross does supersede all those distinctions. It encompasses all of those distinctions. There's not one salvation for one group and one redemption for another group, but it is the same cross that saves all of us. And while we all have different gifts and different abilities and different backgrounds and different cultures, when it comes to redemption, there are no distinctions. We are all the same at the cross Amen. of Calvary. Notice also that Paul here doesn't hesitate to use himself to prove this point. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Did I die for you on the cross? Now the same question could be asked of Apollos or it could be asked of Cephas, but Paul makes this very personal. See, because the last thing he wanted was for some cult to be formed around his name. Amen. Paul was... A very humble servant of Christ. And that's how a true humble servant is. It's so easy in the ministry when you get people that finally start to listen to you, that finally start to care about what you have to say. It's so easy to very quickly allow that to puff you up in arrogance. Right. Amen. But Paul here with Holy Spirit humility says, Hey, wait a minute. I didn't die for you on that cross. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? So why are you paying so much homage to me? Mm -hmm. Amen. Paul came to exhort them to unity. He, he did not want to be a source of their division. So Paul de-elevates these men that the Corinthians had uh, lifted up and he exalts the one and only Savior who was crucified to redeem and unite his people. And if there is anything 
that can recall Christians from the heat of strife and contention, it is the recollection that they have all been purchased by the same blood. And it is the same Savior who died to redeem them all. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the one who modeled our unity, accomplished our unity. Had Christ not died to redeem us, you realize it would have been impossible for us to have ever come together. Now surely we may find some carnal bonds to hold us together for a moment, but only the work of Christ upon the cross can eternally unite such a diverse and different assortment of people. Amen. I'm sure that if, if all of us got to talking this evening if we were to take away the bond that we have in Jesus Christ, I'm sure that we, there's a lot of us here that wouldn't have very much else in common. Oh, but what we have in common in the cross, so much more than what we could ever have by some earthly means. And so we better learn to get along. Amen. We're going to be together forever. Amen. We're so quick to exclude our brother on earth to have no fellowship with him on earth. Well, we better realize that we're going to be spending eternity for him. We're with him. <laughs> so we do well to learn how to model this unity. Amen. And it must be understood that our disunity bears a false witness, not only concerning the person of Christ, but also as it regards the work of Christ. See, to be divided in the body of Christ is a violation of our redeemed nature. And it is in direct opposition to our Lord's will. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ praying to the Father, prayed that His people might be one. And when we display a host of divisions, we testify to the world two things. Number one, that Christ failed to accomplish the unity which He died to secure. And number two, that His prayer for our unity was never answered. It's a very serious thing. How can we say that Jesus died to make us one when we spend all of our time fighting and trifling with one another? There's so many things in our world today. There's so many problems, so many challenges for Christians, even in our own country. You know, I really don't have time to fight other brothers and sisters in the Lord. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, if they're not against us, they're for us. In other words, leave them alone. Yeah. They do it a little different. Okay, if you can't join up with their church, that's fine. Leave them alone. We've got dragons to slay. Amen. We've got real battles that need to be fought. And I just don't have the time to always be fighting with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, was Paul crucified for you? No, the Lord was crucified for you. Amen. So you need to come together and you need to have unity with all those other people whom the Lord has died for on the cross. That's the second point of unity. The third point of unity I want you to see there is unity in baptism. Unity in baptism. Now, we would be remiss if we skipped over this important topic 
I think in these verses alone, the word baptism or baptized or some form of it is found five times in this passage. And Paul concludes with this third argument for church unity. And he appeals to the ordinance of water baptism as something that should bring the Corinthians together. He asks them this, Were ye baptized in the name of Paul? All three of these questions refer to a specific unifying bond or principle. And all three of these principles are things that the church at Corinth had abused and turned into a point of contention. They had taken the person of Christ and made that a division. They had taken the cross and used that to further their disunity. And they had done the exact same thing with baptism. Paul would have us to know that baptism is an ordinance which church members all find great commonality in. But these immature believers at Corinth had used their baptism to further the divisions in this already fractured church. And we see the unifying aspect of baptism in this verse. He says, were ye baptized, watch this key phrase here, in the name of of Paul, in the name of Paul. See, water baptism doesn't unite us because we were all immersed. That's not what we have in common. It's not just that, well, we were all dumped. That's not what we have in common. What we have in common is that we were all immersed, we were all baptized into a name. Into a name. And Christian baptism, properly administered, is in the name of the triune God. And that's what we have in common. And when we are baptized into the name of the triune God, we are publicly identifying ourselves with God and with all those who are likewise covenantally united to God with Christ as their their federal head, their representative. In baptism, we are simply outwardly proclaiming what Christ did for us on that cross. That's why Paul doesn't really separate them here. He says, were you crucified? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Because it's inconsistent in the apostles' thinking for someone to have been atoned for by Christ on the cross to then not also submit to scriptural baptism. It is through regeneration, conversion, that is repentance and faith, that we partake of the internal aspects of this gracious covenant that God has made with His people. In other words, you who are without Christ, you who are lost, in order to be redeemed, in order to be saved by Him, it is not the baptismal waters that you need to enter into, but it is with the eye of faith, you need to look unto Christ. Amen. And in that moment, internally, you are united with God. But there's a way that we unite with God and His people externally. And we do that through the ordinance of baptism. In baptism, we are publicly professing externally what God has done within us. Amen. And we are identifying ourselves with everyone else who has likewise experienced the redeeming grace of God. You'll notice it's 
it's kind of nuanced and a lot of people overlook it. But if you go back there in Matthew, when the Great Commission is given, it's not in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Ghost. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's one name. It's the name of the triune God. It's not the names. It's the name. And when we are baptized into the name of Christ, into the name of God, who we are publicly united, we we begin to partake externally of the covenant that God has made with His people that He died to redeem. And so there's several deductions here that we can make from Paul's reference to baptism. I want you to turn to Galatians 3 and verse 27. Galatians 3, 27. Several deductions. The first is this. Baptism is imperative for believers. Baptism is imperative for believers. There in Galatians chapter number 3 and verse 27, the same apostle that wrote the epistle to the Corinthians says this, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Amen. So we see here that baptism is an ordinance. And that means simply that it is ordained of God in His wisdom, because no one is more wise than God. Amen. This is what He has given us as an ordinance, and He has ordained water baptism as the means for believers to give an open testimony that they have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Amen. Now, baptism must be for believers only because only believers possess such a testimony of the saving grace of God. If we are professing that Christ has redeemed us, if we are saying that when He died, I died, and when He rose again, I rose again to a newness of life, only a believer can give such a profession. So baptism then cannot save you, but once you are saved, you are not obedient until you have submitted yourself to this ordinance. The early church... um, didn't even regard Christians who had not been baptized as disciples. Remember Polycarp, that martyr that was crucified, or that was put on this, burnt on the stake in the first century, when he said, 80 and 6 years have I served him, he was referencing his baptism. Polycarp essentially said, when I was baptized, that's when I really became a disciple and began serving him. Now I was already converted, But I wasn't a disciple, a follower, until I had taken that first step of obedience. And so if you're converted, but you're not baptized, you're you're somewhat of a walking contradiction. Because in your heart, you profess that God has graciously saved you. In your heart, you're saying, God has put me in the kingdom of Christ. But outwardly, you're professing that you're still in the kingdom of darkness. And if you've not been baptized, then as Galatians 3 says, you've not put on Christ. That's an external putting Him on. It's really, if you study the context, it's it's a reference to the priestly garments. And in the New Testament, He's made us all kings and priests unto our God. 
and all of us being priests, the priesthood of the believer, we are we put on Christ the, the priestly garments of the new covenant. And baptism is, is where we publicly unite with Christ and His people. And as an unbaptized believer, you are hindering the unity that God intends to exist between His people. Because that's one point of unity that we all share. There's nothing more important for you to do if, if, if you're in that situation than to obey this ordinance that God has given us. So baptism is imperative for believers. That's the first deduction. Secondly, I want you to see that baptism unites believers. Baptism unites believers. Because it is a public identification with God and His people, it has a unique ability to unite the people of God in an external way like nothing else can. See, because I have been baptized in the triune name, I have more in common with someone in the jungles of Brazil that's also been baptized in the triune name than I do with someone in Paris, Tennessee that hasn't been baptized in the triune name. Right, amen. We've all publicly made the same profession. Now, we might believe differently about a host of other issues, about many different doctrines. Well, we have a different language, different skin color, different culture. But we've both united in the same public profession. Our profession concerning what God has done for us in Christ is identical. And so there's a commonality there that exists externally that nothing else can really bring about. And therefore, I have much more that unites me with the baptized Brazilian than I do with the unbaptized Parisian. And this is what Paul was trying to get across to the Corinthians. Their, their grave sin was patronizing these religious leaders to the point that it was as if they thought they had been baptized into the name of their favorite preacher. They were saying, I am of Apollos. I identify with Apollos. I am publicly professing my allegiance to Apollos or Paul or Caesar, whoever it was. So Paul says, wait a minute. You're identifying with Apollos so much. You're identifying with this preacher so much. Were you baptized into his name? And with this stern rhetorical question, Paul reminded them that they had all been baptized into the same name of the triune God and they needed to start acting like it. You know, there's places in the Scriptures where we are called back to our baptism as, as a point of unity. Remember in Ephesians 4 where... Paul says there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And that is something that should bring us together, should unite us. It, in a sense, in the heat of disagreement, in the heat of church fights, and Corinth knows how to put on a good church fight, there's going to be times where we're going to disagree. We're all a room full of sinners, amen? Right. But at the end of the day, we should all be able to look one another in the eye and we should be able to say, we might have an issue that we need to deal with, but we were both saved yes. by Christ. He died for both of us on the cross, and we were both baptized into His name. And those three points of unity can overcome whatever kind of division we might have otherwise. Amen. And then in verses 14, 15, and 16, Paul continues his reproof with a personal testimony. The personal testimony... 
He says, verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. And you see, he's, he's thankful that by the providence of God, he baptized very few of the Corinthians. Because he, he, then he adds in there, he says, well, uh, except for Crispus and Gaius. And so he's, he's not emphasizing those he baptized, he's emphasizing those he didn't baptize. See, because had he baptized a large number of them, they may have accused him of baptizing in his own name. He says as much in verse 15. He says, I'm glad I didn't baptize that many of you, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. He knew with their immaturity that that's probably what they would have done. Mm -hmm. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ never baptized anyone, but His disciples baptized many converts. Why is that? That's because the Lord knows our hearts and He knows that there in the first century there would have been a crowd that would have said, I personally was baptized by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? I I even hear that today. Mm. I've heard Christians say, well, you won't believe who baptized me. Preacher so-and-so from way back when. It's foolishness. Sure. First of all, uh, Christ did not give any individual the authority to baptize. He gave that to His church. Amen. So it doesn't matter what man was the physical agent that dumped you underwater. It's the Lord's church that baptizes. Mm-hmm. And it's into the name of God. God. He's taken man out of the equation. Amen. And if you're a member of of the New Testament Baptist Church in Dover, Tennessee. It doesn't matter if Larry Lafferty baptized you or Jarrett Watson baptized you. Right. Amen. You're baptized in the name of the triune God. And so with this thanksgiving, with Paul saying, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, he's distancing himself from these factions. And he's highlighting the fact that it doesn't matter who baptized you, What matters is who you were baptized into. Now some have accused Paul at this point of devaluing the importance of baptism. Especially when he goes on and he says, I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. And some have accused Paul of saying, well, Paul didn't even remember the baptisms. Therefore, it must not have been that important. But in reality, the opposite is true. The opposite is true. What Paul is saying here is that baptism is so important. Baptism is such a sacred rite for Christians that he would rather not administer this ordinance if they were going to so abuse it. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe that we as ministers of Christ, as the Lord's church, I don't really see any provision in the Scriptures for withholding baptism to someone who's making a credible profession of faith. I know some churches, uh, they want to put them in a six-month membership class and observe them for half a year before they baptize them. I don't see that in the New Testament. You're right. But I will say this, if we could have the omniscience, and this is a strict hypothetical, if we could have the omniscience, if we could know before we baptize someone that they're a false convert, that they're an apostate, that, that their profession is not going to stick and in six months they're going to be right back into the world, it would be so much better for that person if we didn't baptize them at all. 
Just like baptism is an imperative for the obedience of the believer, all it does for the apostate, for the unbeliever, is it heaps further condemnation upon their head because they're making a false profession. They're joining externally the new covenant. They're joining the Lord's church. And there is a sore condemnation for those who fall away than for those who were never a part of it to begin with. Mm -hmm. It's just like the Lord's Supper. Paul will go on, uh, Lord willing, we will finally one day in many months get to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. And when we get there, we'll find the Apostle Paul essentially saying, it's better for you to not eat at all than it is to eat unworthily. And the same is true for our baptism. Mm -hmm. And that's what Paul is saying. He's not devaluing baptism. He's not uh, making it as if baptism is not important. But what he's saying is that it is so important, and therefore, it's better for him to not baptize at all for them to misuse their baptism. Mm -hmm. And this is how Paul concludes this section on the imperative of church unity. The imperative... Of church unity. Now, last week we saw the manifestation of their division, and in our passage tonight we see the threefold argument which propels us to church unity. Three reasons we, we ought to be united because of the nature of Christ. That is, our Lord, whom we serve, is not divided. And He has left us a perfect example of unity and harmony. And because He is the head of the church and we are His body, Divisions in the body are an attempt to divide Christ Himself, which is an absolute, utter impossibility. Secondly, we ought to be united because of the cross. By His work on the cross, Christ has weaved together a beautiful tapestry of redeemed people from all walks of life. And the gospel of Christ has the supernatural ability to bring together a people that would never come together otherwise. Amen. The preeminence of Christ and His gospel are the sure antidote for disunity among God's people. Mm-hmm. If we would think upon Christ and think upon the cross, I believe we'd have more peace with our brothers and sisters. Amen. And lastly... We ought to be united because we have all been baptized into the name of the triune God. We have a real and abiding union with Christ and with one another. And because of what God has done for us in Christ, we have so much more to bring us together than we do to tear us apart. We all serve the same God. We've all been redeemed by the same Savior. We've all been baptized into His name. And we need to start acting like it. Mm -hmm. And we at Christ Fellowship must endeavor to keep division out of the church and to strive for harmonious unity if we are to bring glory to God, exalt Jesus Christ, and serve Him as He ought to be served. Amen. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name. The name that we all unite around this evening. We thank You for Calvary's cross that single work that He accomplished, bringing us together. We thank You for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ where we can assemble visibly and locally and worship our God with one another. Lord, grant this assembly 
sweet fellowship. Let us love one another, even as Christ has loved us. Let us be one, even as Christ is one with you, Father. Lord, I thank you for all of these here this evening. Because of your grace, I have a sincere love for each and every one of them. And I ask, Lord, that you would continue to shape us and to mold us, to build relationships within this body, to add to this church as you see fit. Help us to glorify thee. Lord, keep us by your power and by your spirit until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.